Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Adams, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Chelsea Beyond DeLillo about her debut collection of essays, The Skinned Bird. If you've ever flipped a large rock over to see what was underneath and encountered dark sludge, the movement of insects, and the stirring of your own fascination— then you know something about the project that Chelsea Beyond DeLillo undertakes in her debut collection. In it, Beyond DeLillo peels away both her own and her readers' tidy understandings of the self and the natural world and reveals messy and difficult narratives, memories, and revelations. This is a book that makes connections between the writer's personal and familial histories and biology, meteorology, anatomy, astronomy, even pseudosciences like phrenology. In one essay, Beyond DeLillo immerses her reader in a juxtaposition of the phases of birdsong acquisition with memories and questions about childhood and inherited heartbreak. In the title essay, Beyond DeLillo details how to turn a dead bird into a scientific specimen. She instructs her reader, When both wings are free from the body, gently peel the back skin from the muscle. She then uses that same precision, that desire to handle and observe, to catalog and examine her own relationship with her father. Over the course of this collection, a reader can expect a wide range of forms on the page. Some essays are a series of richly detailed vignettes. Others contain lists and scientific diagrams. Others pair photographs with text or even obscure the text with those images. The center of gravity of the skinned bird is, however, a mind that is deeply interested in how we become who we are, what we can learn from the beauty and cruelty of our own lives and the world we live in, what it means to read and learn, and what are the consequences of loving something, be it a grandmother, a lover, or the songbird outside our window. Chelsea, Thank you so much for joining me on the New Books Network to talk about your wonderful new book, The Skinned Bird. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. I really appreciate it. This book is a fascinating collection, and it weaves together your interest in animal taxonomy. It has diagrams of weather, photographs, with these moving explorations of the self, of loss, of family history, and these dark and squishy and unseemly underbellies of the natural world and the mind. And before we get to that, I wondered if we might actually just begin with you telling listeners a little bit about yourself and how you come to writing and about what you write. Sure. I, I came to writing late in life compared to some. I was I, I had a career in uh, retail information technology up until 2008. And like many people in the country, um, that was my year of unexpected reset. And while I had, 
I, I started I started out as an artist in undergrad, and I had always written terrible poetry and um, drawn and taken taken pictures, but I had I hadn't ever committed myself to a creative practice outside of school until 2008. And I thought, well, this is a chance to start over completely. And I want to get back to the things that I enjoy. And that was, uh, for me, writing and and making art. So I started taking some classes, eventually got into an MFA program, and for several years wrote as much as I could uh, for as many of my days as I could until we arrive at today. Yeah. And I feel like the essays in this collection really capture in a way a lot of the experiences that lead up to that that moment when you come to writing because they contain subject matter that, you know, it spans from skinning a bird so that it's a scientific specimen. And I'm fascinated to hear if that's something that you that you've done and have experience with and to songbirds and how they learn to sing, volcanic eruptions and weather patterns, shells, um, tattoos and family and this question of what we inherit um, and these questions of what we witness and what that might mean. Um, And I'm not even scratching the surface. And one of the things that I'm interested in is how you approached this research and how you pulled from your life and your experiences. So I wondered if you might tell listeners a little bit about that. Sure. It's, you know, it's interesting. The, the week after I lost my job, I signed up for a bunch of classes. Um, you know, and it was one of those moments because I, I got a, um, I got a generous, of severance package. And so I did not, uh, and I was eligible for unemployment. And so I didn't have to immediately go and, and find a job, um, the next day. And so, so what I, what I did do though, within the first week is I signed up for a bunch of classes and it's this moment of like, you can do anything with your time. What do you want to do? And for me, it was go back to school, which is so nerdy, but the, the classes that I signed up for were in geology, um, Spanish, uh, creative writing and belly dancing. Cause I wanted to cover all my bases. Um, but you know, and after that, I, I thought this is so great. Like, I don't know why I ever got out of school in the first place. Um, but when those classes were over, I signed up for more. And so then the next round of classes were on, um, astronomy and, um, invasive species and things like this. I took classes at extension programs and, you know, at, at, um, whatever local parks and not just universities, but these were things that I had always wanted to know more about, but didn't think that I had the time or space in, in my life to find out more about them. And so when, once that, um, time and space presented itself, that's exactly what I filled up my time with is, is, is learning. And so, um, after I was laid off in 2008, uh, and you know, was amassing these various classes, uh, eventually somebody told me that I should, should try to get into an MFA. Um, and once they explained to me that these things were funded, I was like, sign me up, um, because I need a job. Uh, and so the program that I, that I chose at the university of Wyoming actually had the option of getting a dual degree in, environmental studies, along with creative writing, and nobody else had that exact offering. And so I 
Um, I was so excited about it. And once I got there, I, I signed up for even more science classes. I took another geology class. I took ornithology class. Um, and through the ornithology program is actually how I learned about the, the bird skinning opportunity. They told us one day in lecture that the natural history collection needed volunteers to help prepare specimens and that they would train us how to do it. And if we were interested to show up at this certain room on this certain day and man, I ran there that day and, you know, got to the door and the faculty advisor there, I was like, am I too late to sign up for skinning birds? (laughs) He's like, you are the only person who has shown up and it is one minute after the time we said, so no, (laughs) you're, you're not too late. Um, you know, and I just, to call it, it is, it is, I, a lot of these stories are absolutely researched. Um, but my research methodologies are so, um, just random and, and absolutely inspired by the things that I see and experience and am nosy and curious about. Uh, if I, if I see a bird, uh, I want to identify it. If I see a bird doing something that seems interesting, I want to understand why. And this is the way my mind works, no matter what I'm doing. If my day job is, is sitting in a cubicle or, or teaching in a classroom or sitting down to write, um, that's the way I approach, approach the world. And so um, there was really no other way for me to represent my process on the page than, than just like that, a bunch of leaps and bounds and hope that I could um, figure out a way to do it so that readers could follow me. Yeah, and I I really love how you were talking about that process of organically following your interests and fascinations because I really want readers to know that at its core, The Skin Bird is a collection of essays that's really placing the self and the human being that does these things, that skins those birds, that is looking at those vultures um, in relation to these fascinations and this research. Um, and it's it, it it's this layering of the self and your history with that research that produces something so rich and textured. And I think if I were trying to describe the book, I would probably fail <laughs> in so many numerous ways. Um, you know, like I imagine that people might say, you know, it's an intersection of lyric essays that plays with and invents new forms and it all uses the natural world um, and its beauty and design and brutality to explore tensions in the self. And I still know as I'm saying that, that that fails to capture the book. And I thought that I might ask you to share with listeners how you try to describe the book to readers coming to it for the first time. And I have failed to do this so many times. Like sometimes when I was first, when the book was first um, accepted by Kern Punked, um, the publisher, you know, everyone, everyone wanted to know what's your book about? What's, Oh, you got your book's going to be published. What's it about? Um, and they, they really wanted a, like a one sentence, like grab you elevator pitch. And I 
struggled so much with that. I was, well, like, it's kind of sad and there's a lot of dead birds, um, but it's not a bummer. And um, I think that it, you'll learn something, uh, not just about me. <laughs> um, and then eventually I had honed it down to um, this is a, a, a collection of lyric and experimental essays that uses scientific and pseudo-scientific lenses, along with an extended metaphor about birds and geology, um, to talk about heartbreak and the and the legacy of um, love gone wrong, I think. Um, how, how things like heartbreak reverberate through uh, sometimes even generations. And yeah, that's sort of where I am right now. It obviously still needs work because I would, nobody would, would call it pithy. <laughs> no one would call it pithy, but at at the same time, I I really I don't envy the I both envy and don't envy you because I I I don't envy the way in which the you have to try to condense it, and I also envy the expansiveness and the way in which I really feel that anyone can find something that's going to resonate with them in this collection. Um, and uh, just for me, for example, um, like I get a lot of emails from the Ohio Wildlife Center because I've brought them many orphaned and abandoned animals. And I'm sure you can imagine how attracted I am to the ways that you're exploring kinship and cruelty to one another and also to animals. Um, and I, I was thinking about how Derrida writes, the animal looks at us and we are naked before it. Thinking perhaps begins there. And then the epigraph of your book is this quotation from Kristen Arnett, I am repurposing the animal. I will do it gently, carefully. I will do it with love. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, um, what can we learn from thinking about animals and repurposing them in writing and what appeals to you about using them this way on the page? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that, um, well, I think in, in part, right, animals, animals are our um, most recognizable um, mammals especially but but birds as well they're they're a way for us to access the net they're an access point to the natural world because we think we can easily think of them as behaving in ways that are similar to us whereas we can't really do that with a tree um or a mushroom or uh, a seashell um but but we can imagine the creature that carries the shell around um having you know wants and desires and needs uh the same as we do and so, so animals are this access point to the natural world, but they're also uh, ultimately unknowable. I mean, you, you might say, I, I know exactly what my cat is thinking, um, or your dog, um, or, you know, you, you can watch a bird building a nest and, and think that you understand what that bird is thinking about while it does that. But, but there's no way to confirm or deny that information. Um, we animals require that we kind of sit with a certain amount of unknowingness, and um, because of that unknowingness, we also have to accept a certain amount of of kind of potential for chaos. I, because I don't know what what that bird is really thinking, 
I can't really predict what it's going to do next uh, or why. And I think it's important um, for, well, I think it's important for me for sure. And maybe it's helpful to other people um, to accept that kind of um, unknowingness in addition to welcoming that kind of connection to the natural world of which we are a part, no matter how big or industrial or built of an environment we surround ourselves with, um, we are still creatures of the natural world um, at heart. And so, so that kind of dichotomy, I guess, between um, what we are a part of and, and what we can't be a part of is what interests me. It's one of the things that interests me. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, how for, for me, like one of the things that interests me is not only the way in which the animals populate your book and the way that they are constantly used in that, that way that, you know, they are both knowable and unknowable and the people in your book at times feel both knowable and unknowable. Um, and I was thinking about the care and attention that you have given to this emotional arc that you're giving readers. Um, you know, you, you referenced before that, that this is, this is a, this is a collection that at its core, there's this sort of like pulsing center of like of heartbreak and heartache and you you put it so beautifully the way that that might reverberate through generations um and i wondered if um you might talk about how the assembly of this collection went um what you chose to keep what did not work and um how the whole thing was made Sure. It, you know, it was a, it was not a short and pretty process for sure, because the first essays in this collection were uh, first drafted probably around 2011, 2012. Uh, and the, the final essays were not completed until two days before my deadline from the publisher, which was last December. So just about five months ago. Um, and that's a really long span. And and originally the collection was, um, you know, it, it was primarily my thesis from graduate school. And it was um, the, the essays that I had written in um, partial, um, however it is that we were that, in, in partial completion of my, my Master of Fine Arts. And in my particular thesis advisor had been very open to my experimenting. So some of those original pieces were like much more scientific reporting, environmental journalism type pieces. And then some of them are um, very short lyric uh, flash essays slash prose poems. They were all mixed up in the book and they didn't, um, they really didn't hang together. And I deeply understood that when I turned the thesis in, I, and, um, but when I got out of school, there was a lot of pressure to, for us all to try to get our theses published. So I start sending it out. And really that's the, that's the feedback I, I get that the, the writing is wonderful, but 
we don't really know what this book is about um, or, or how we would ever possibly market this book or, or whatever. The, the individual pieces were all getting accepted for publication. Some of them were winning awards. Um, and that's what I, I kept hearing. The writing is great, but it doesn't, it doesn't hang together. And so every now and then I would pull it out, rearrange things, take a couple of pieces out that, you know, uh, one of these things is not like the other, <laughs> which, which pieces don't fit the, the journalism pieces were the first to go. Uh, and, and then I would, would fill those with new work. And it wasn't until I wrote the essay that's now the first essay, uh, critical learning period that, um, the book started to make sense as a whole object to me. And in that essay, uh, I really, I was, I had been interested in bird. I have, have been interested in bird songs um, since I was a kid. My, my grandmother was a birder and she taught me some bird calls when I was little, which made me a a complete outcast and nerd at school. But um, I, I've just, I've always known about birds and I've, and I've appreciated their calls. One of my first essays ever when I decided to be a writer was about starlings and how starlings learn to mimic. Um, so when in ornithology class, I learned that birds, um, learn to sing in a four part process, I kind of filed that information away, um, thinking like, man, I got to write about that someday. Uh, and then when I found myself in a position where I was really thinking a lot about my parents' early, short, and doomed marriage, um, that idea of birdsong came back to me. And so that, that essay was formed. And once I had it, I thought, I, I bet, I, I wonder, <laughs> it would be a better way. I wonder what would happen if um, I organized the book according to those four, that four part process of learning, learning a song. And, um, you know, it was more curiosity at first than anything. Like, could this, could this be a possible organization? And once I started moving the essays around with that idea of, um, a silent period and a, and a practicing period and a song crystallization period, uh, the, then it became, it became so much more obvious which pieces needed to go and where there were, um, opportunities in the text to add more writing. And so at that point, uh, it felt like so much more of a cohesive product to me and, and to, to an editor as well, because the, the, the first person that, that looked at it after that snatched it up. So and I just, I mean, that first essay, I mean, that, I mean, it's such a powerful experience as you're at, for a reader. I, I want to let listeners know of this child reckoning and making sense of legacy and memory. And it's interwoven so beautifully um, with all of the portions about that you talked about those four stages from songbirds. And, um, it, it just is such a – I mean, you know, if we're talking about songbirds and crafting, you know, I mean, people talk about rivers and people talk about journeys. But, you know, for me, this is um, – for for listeners, I want them to know it, it sometimes feels like uh, music in the sense that there are essays that move slow and there are essays that are very quick, just a, just a flash. Um uh, but I also wanted 
for listeners that might be less familiar with experimental forms, if we could delve into what that experience will be like, that kind of song that you weave for readers. Um, And because there are such interesting forms in this collection, I wanted to ask you um, if you might tell listeners who are more unfamiliar with hermit crab essays um, and erasures a little bit about those forms and how they work and how a reader might encounter them in your collection. Sure, sure. So um, yeah, there are a couple of different forms that uh, appear and reappear in the skinned bird. Um, And so one of them is the erasure, uh, and that's um, where parts of a text are obscured or obliterated or blacked out, and other parts of the text are allowed to be seen. Usually an erasure is something that one writer um, does to another writer's work. So, for example, I might take... Um, a William Carlos William poem. That's a bad example because it's already so brief, but I might take a poem and, and black out some of the lines so that only a few words come through. And those few words that come through become my erasure poem. In the case of the story you never tell, Mm -hmm. which is one of the pieces in, in my book, I actually obliterate my own text. And, um, I, I do that for a couple of reasons. And, um, one of them has to do with the the very idea of um, of obscuring that that you that you you might obscure something for to hide it, but you also might obscure something to protect it. And uh, in this particular case, in this essay, um, the text is covered up by photographs of shells and seashells specifically because shells are a form of armor. They're a form of protection. An actual sea creature with a shell doesn't hide in their shell at all. They actually thrive in their shell. Um, The shell is what affords them um, what they need to pursue the necessities of their lives. And so um, the, the shells in this particular case are... They're protecting the text for sure, but they're also, um, they're, they are interrupting the reading experience and asking the reader to consider, uh, what is it that's important? Um, how many words are required for something to count as an essay, first of all, at the kind of cerebral level, but also at the, at the experiential level. What do you do with an essay that you can't read? And does that mean it is um, secret? Does it mean it is um, too powerful? Does it mean that it's, um, you know, what does it mean? And so that's the erasure um, essay. I've also got braided essays, which are a kind of lyric essay. And that's where one, uh, two or more different topics are braided together. So the first essay that I mentioned, Critical Learning Period, um, and also an essay, The Skinned Bird, uh, which comes in the kind of middle of the book, and then uh, Zugun Ruhe II, the last essay in the book, those essays all braid a couple of different things together. Um, 
usually some kind of scientific research, in this case, either how birds learn to sing or how a a taxidermist prepares a bird specimen or why birds migrate in the way they do, along with another topic. And in this case, usually it has to do with an aspect of mine or my parents' or uh, lives or a relationship. And in braiding those two topics, I, um, I give the reader a, a way of looking at the personal story differently. Um, than just a story about myself. By braiding, for example, um, how songbirds learn to sing along with my parents' divorce, um, I'm making a statement that that the, my parents divorcing young, um, their, their short and somewhat brutal marriage, um, yes, it's tragic, uh, or, or yes, that was a, a sad way to start my life. But, but what it also is, is a way of looking at how my vocabulary as a person in the world was formed and changed forever after. And it doesn't have to be only bad. Um, in the case of songbirds, you know, the, the song that they learn to sing, much like the language we use to communicate with one another, much like the seashell, it is, it, it affords us what we need to thrive in our lives. And so what, um, what formed that vocabulary or language, what formed that shell, all of those formative uh, experiences are interesting and unique as well as maybe something else. I don't know. Did that answer the question? Oh yeah, that was wonderful. Um, (laughs) I, I, I'm maybe going to steal this and show it to my students so that they have um, those wonderful definitions to go forward with. Um, And, um, you know, when when I was thinking about the the ways that you're playing with form in particularly your self erasure, which I, I think, you know, you so beautifully described how, you know, there is that it's it's a different act when it's your own text. Um and I, I was thinking about something that you write in Phrenology, I believe. You write, I wanted to see the aftermath. I wanted to know how things were unmade. And I was thinking about that it in relation to the story you never tell, because it is both a making and an unmaking. The aftermath is its own thing. And um I want I not that in any way um, we want you to talk about the content of that essay, but I did want you to think about um, and maybe talk to to listeners a little bit about um, this question of of reading and how coming to an essay like say the story you never tell um, in this you know and being exposed to this unmaking, this aftermath in a sense, um, how that can provide us new ways of seeing ourselves in the world we live in. Wow. That's a, that's okay. So that's a great question. And I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'll think about it out loud a little. Um, I, I think that, so that, that essay is, on the one hand, an erasure because you you know that there's text or you 
you assume based on the way it is visually presented on the page that there is a whole essay under those photographs that you don't have access to except for a couple of words around the edges. Um, so on the one hand, it's an erasure, it's a, it's an obliteration, but it's also a collage because it's my text underneath and my photos on top. And so first of all, a lot of the, um, the normal issues of, sort of um, power and privilege that erasure often brings up, right? Those are kind of off the table. And so instead, what what readers are, are left with is this assemblage um, that I have chosen to present in a particular way. Uh, it's, it is, um, hopefully, maybe, um, just as much a piece of art as it is a piece of writing. Um, there is, you know, I can... I can assure anyone who's concerned, there's definitely an essay under there. Um, but what's, what's I think interesting is, is again, this idea of how much, how much language is needed for it to count. Uh, and I think of texts like Jenny Bully's The Body, where we have only footnotes and no body text. Um, and, and so we're, we're left to kind of wonder, am I supposed to solve this riddle or am I supposed to sit with the unsolvableness of this riddle? Um, another great, um, book like that, that certainly informs my, my process here is, uh, Sarah Mangusa's 300 arguments where she says, um, I don't have my, my copy, so I might mess the quote up, but it's something to the effect of, I wanted this book to be a collection of all of the passages that would be highlighted in a longer book. So what we have in 300 Arguments is just what she considers the juiciest bits from this big book that we don't ever get to see. And I think that as a reader, um, much like as a as a viewer of the natural world, right, where there's this there's this um, dichotomy between what we can and can't know. As a reader, you might think, oh, I'm really learning everything about this writer as I'm reading this nonfiction they wrote about themselves. I see the I on the page, and therefore, I'm really learning about them. But, you know, we're not. We're learning about a persona. And so in the case of this particular essay that's been erased, um, is am I... Am I keeping something from readers um, or am I giving readers an entirely different way to look at a piece of text in this way, almost as a piece of visual art um, or as a process of thinking through an actual idea so much so that I get past the idea and then it becomes purely image? Uh, I don't know if that answers that question, but that's some of the thinking that I had about that piece. I really didn't. Originally, it was written as a regular essay, uh, and um, I kept I wasn't happy with it as a regular essay. And so I kept playing with it, thinking, you know, at one point I highlighted all the text in black. So then it just looks like these big black bars on the page. And I thought, well, no, that looks like that looks like I'm trying to hide something. Um, and really what I'm trying to do is layer more possible, more possibility onto the page than just the words and sentences and paragraphs. Yeah. That I, I mean, that's so fascinating because, you know, you, 
I, I read a craft essay of yours um, on shells mm-hmm. where um, you you talk about how hermit crab essays, which I mean, take the shell, which in your self erasure, you know, there is that shell, right? And you talk about how the insinuation is that there's like a wound that needs to be protected. That's the implication there. But your essay, it it twists and morphs that insinuation and it plays with it um, in such inventive ways that it becomes not that. Um, it is, it's not this wound that needs protecting. It, it's asking so many other questions beyond that. Um, and I, I'd like, thank you. Th- I, I wanted to thank you for talking with me about that essay because, you know, it does have this real gravity in, I mean, you know, almost the center of your collection. Um, well, and it's interesting too, because, and I didn't really define a hermit crab essay earlier when you asked, um, but as you said, a hermit crab essay takes the form of something else. And so in a, and, and I, I don't think that I have any, technically any hermit crab essays in this collection, though I have written them. Um, but that would be, for example, an essay that takes the form of a college syllabus Mm -hmm. uh, or an essay that takes the form of a letter to the editor. Uh, And so because it is borrowing the shell of something else, we call it a hermit crab essay. Well, it is um, part of the reason that I used shells in the story you never tell was a tiny little, like, I don't know, like a, like an essayist joke, maybe, Um, specifically because I've written so much about hermit crab essays and this idea of, um, of, of taking another form. And in this case, and again, I really think that that's the key rather than hiding, uh, like we, like, like people use shells in say, for example, the shell game, you're hiding something and trying to trick someone. But again, shells in the natural world are homes. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, and even in the case of a hermit crab, a hermit crab is borrowing the best possible shape for it to live in. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, because I, I tried a number of different images as well on this essay. I had taken all kinds of photographs and had, had played with different things laying over the text. And really it wasn't until, uh, the first couple of seashell photographs that I was like, yes, like that's, that's, that's it. I think that might be it. I had to take a whole roll equivalent of a roll of film and try them out. Um, but it was, it was a pleasant surprise when I finally came upon it. And I think part of it is again, that kind of little private joke of um, the idea of a shell kind of reverberating through my own brain pan as I'm working through my process. That's I, I I'm so happy that you confirmed that I had this I had this suspicion sort of knocking around <laughs> as I was reading the skinned bird that that it that it was kind of like a tip of the hat. Um, so thank you for confirming that suspicion so beautifully. Um, I um wanted uh before I ask you to to read actually from the skinned bird, I did actually want to ask you um about this other. Th- thread that seems to move through the collection. Um, and that seems to be that you're in a lot of essays like crazy and phrenology, um, you're exploring the way that dominant culture may push against and try to control girls and women. And at one point you write, 
in the collection, you write, I had learned not yet, I had not yet learned to be squeamish like a girl. Um, and so as kind of a fellow girl who was mercilessly teased for picking up anything and turning over things that were gross and squishy and looking at things under a microscope. Um, you have this wonderful image of yourself as a child just looking so fiercely at something that you crack the slide. Um, and I wonder um, what you might tell readers about the ways that this collection explores girlhood and dark fascinations and the ways in which um, – you're so often told to give these things up in the service of performing your gender correctly. Yeah. You know, like I, my, one of my first models of a naturalist um, was my grandmother and she was definitely very amateur in her naturalisting. Um, you know, she would write kind of letters to the editor about, her favorite wildflowers. She took photographs, traveled all over the place to record these things. Um, she would climb over fences to get to um, dried flower heads that she wanted. Um, and so when I was a kid, there didn't seem to be anything wrong with that sort of thing. I collected grasshoppers. I, you know, I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't pick up a snake uh, in the backyard, but I would for sure drag my uncle over to where I knew they were so that he could lift up the board and show them to me. Um, and those things didn't seem, uh, I didn't yet know that they were creepy. Uh, and really it wasn't until I got to, um, to junior high when the dominant culture around me started to kind of reinforce that. And I think part of the way for me that that happened was really like at my junior high and high school, almost all of the science teachers I'm running through them in my head that I can remember um, were also sports coaches. And so like they weren't um, fascinated by science. They were like stuck teaching biology 101 at eight in the morning uh, when they had football practice later that afternoon. And so like my, my interests could not have been more uninteresting to them. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a boy. I wasn't, um, I wasn't, uh, shaped like a scientist, right? Uh, that's something, um, studious boys were. And I was like kind of this sort of loud goth girl who by high school was like smoking out, out back, um, with the headbangers. So I think that, while that particular, while that is my particular unique experience at coming to science and scientific thought, um, I don't think it's necessarily um, singular. I mean, we still see this. We still see this effort of the dominant culture to um, push push women's voices um, to to silence women and to to move them out of conversations that have to do with things that are scientific, that are nerdy, that are, um, you know, these, these realms of kind of thought for thought's sake that have been traditionally um, the realm of, of men. And, and I think in part that's because um, 
men were the ones that had the time to sit around and think. <laughs> well, so often for so much of sort of our cultural history, women had to do, they had to take care of the house and cook and clean and take care of children and, and run the whole show so that these guys would have the luxury to sit and ponder and look at microscopes. Um, I certainly don't make any attempt to sum up um, large-scale gender dynamics or the history of, of gender in science, but those are the kinds of things that I think about often, especially as relates to my own development as a thinker and an artist and a writer. Um, because if I had actually been encouraged in science class early on, considering all my dark fascinations, considering with um, considering the ways in which I am fascinated by how things work and why they do what they do, like I might have been a really great scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I always got A's in science, but I was also made very, very, very aware that as soon as I was done with my requirements, I could go and take the classes that would be of more interest to me. And, you know, those were probably art classes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that for sure comes through in the book. And it comes through in terms of me relating my experiences, while also sh- showing those experiences to be in relation to the things that I still to this day as a, you know, over 45 year old woman, um, thinking about the stuff that interests me, like geology and astronomy and meteorology. Yeah. And um, I I think like that is actually a sort of a, a wonderful place to turn back to the book and to those places of interest and maybe to ask you to read a, a, a little bit of it for readers so they can get a sense of of the book um, if, you, if, if you were up for it. Absolutely. So what I'll do is I'm going to read two um, two sections from a from a piece called Enskyment, and um, in the book these pieces are paired with photographs, so we'll have to use our imagination for that. Um, but um, the first one I'm going to read is called The Dogs, and the second one I'm going to read is Rainbow Trout. So here goes The Dogs. Our dogs don't die. Like dissidents, they disappear. Lobo was returned while I was at school to a log and shingle house in the woods. My mother forgot to tell me, and I started to make up his bowl of food and leftovers that night. Pepper was stolen by dogfighters, Tom muttered, as though he knew it for a fact. Her jaw was wide, and she was potato-tight with muscles, just what they wanted. Gus A bright but oversensitive mutt lived a long time at my grandparents after we relocated to a new state. He must have died there, among the blackberry vines and tansy. But before them all, Baron. He was our first dog as a new family. We got him when their baby was on the way. My stepfather named him after me, I saw once on the registration papers. A long, complicated name full of dashes, just as my own had become. Baron was also taken because of his pedigree, his show quality, Tom lamented, because of his beautiful lines. I remember this one photo, his daughter from before, and I standing over Baron, competing smiles toward the picture taker. I'm happier, she seems to say. No me, I counter. It's one of only two photographs of the both of us, the big sisters, and the only one I know of that dog. 
He never was fully housebroken, and then he was gone. She moved away not long after the picture was taken. But in later family portraits, my mother, her husband, their daughter, and I smile as though we're something complete. And then rainbow trout. My father took me fishing once when I was eight or nine. Already I didn't know him, except as a rare visitor who drove me around on the motorcycle he kept at his parents' house whenever he passed through town between jobs. We fished at Eagle Creek. I don't remember if I had a pole or if my job was just to watch him catch something. He jerked the first trout from the water, and I saw him use a rough flick of his hand to pull out the hook. I put my hand to my mouth and pressed two fingers against the gum line of my top teeth. I focused on his hands because his eyes were so unfamiliar. He didn't warn me before he slapped the fish hard against the rock between us. I flinched at the wet crack, and then I saw the fish go still. I knew nothing of fishing. I felt dizzy and afraid of him. It's to put it out of its misery, he said, flustered. Thank you so much for that. Um, such a, I mean, I, I just, the dogs one is one of my favorite pieces. Thank you. Um, uh, one last question, um, before I, I let you go. And, um, I'm, I'm wondering what listeners can look forward to from you. Um, where is your art and your writing taking you now, Chelsea? Man, that is the $65,000 question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the, the skinned bird ends just as I have purchased um, my grandparents' house and land um, after they both passed. And so for the last year and a half, almost two years now, um, I've been living in that space and slowly kind of um, trying to carve it out from decades of neglect and hoarding and the sort of um, uh, creep towards entropy that uh, houses out in the country are subject to. And I've been writing a lot about that process. Um, I also have all of my grandmother's old birding journals and naturalist journals. And I've really been trying to figure out what to do with them, whether it's going to be something like a Julie Julia project or um, how I can interact with this really remarkable record. Um, for like five years, she wrote down every single bird she saw every single day and where. And like, I want to do something with all of that, like handwritten little spidery scrawl data, but I don't yet know what. So I've really been kind of writing around and among and through that. So we'll see. Well, in the meantime, um, Chelsea Beyond DeLillo's uh, collection of essays, The Skin Bird, is available now. And Chelsea, thank you so much for writing this book and for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much, Christine. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.